Welcome to the second season of the Open Update for Liberate Science. I'm your host, Chris Harkrink, and in this season, we interview 10 guests over nine weeks about the UNESCO recommendation on open science. We talk about what it means to them, their work, and the future of research, so that we too can better understand what it means to us, our work, and our future in research. What new ways of being lie in store for us in the next few years, or maybe even decades? And there's a lot to agree or disagree with in this series. And I encourage you to leave voice messages with your thoughts because I would love to hear from you what you think. So share them like you would with a friend. Find how in the show notes and don't be shy, don't be a stranger. We also have something to give away, which we'll do by lottery of all incoming voice messages during this season. Be sure to include a way to reach you when you leave your message. But moving on to today's podcast, today we talk to Irina Kuchma about the undesired boundaries of openness due to, for example, restrictions in bibliodiversity and geopolitical developments. So let's get to it. Irina brings decades of experience working on openness, and she's worked on fostering the practical implementation of open science throughout Europe and beyond. She's also been part of the call to action to increase the diversity in scholarly communication. And she's currently open access manager at the Electronic Information for Libraries organization. And before that, she was at Creative Commons Ukraine. So welcome, Irina, to the Open Update. Thanks a lot, Chris. And um, it's, it's great to be here. Today, we're talking a bit about the UNESCO recommendation on open science. Uh, there's a lot to talk about, and specifically uh, these undesired boundaries of knowledge and openness. And I want to start off, as we do with all our interview guests, what do you think is a low-hanging fruit from this? And what do, you, what do you think is going to be a difficult thing to realize in the next few years? Great question. Um, for me, because uh, I work with... Um, universities and academic libraries, uh, I would say uh, introducing institutional uh, open science policies, because there is an area of action on uh, developing and enabling policy environment for open science uh, in an aligned matter. And I think that's what's already going on in universities and with, with a little bit of effort uh, that could be intensified uh, and uh, one of the projects I've been working on now is to develop uh, a checklist what university managers, university administrators need to do to implement UNESCO recommendation on open science uh, and I hope the checklist will be useful for them and then also invest in uh, human resources training, education, digital literacy and capacity building for open science because that's what uh, many universities are doing already and um, again with uh, a little bit of effort uh, this kind of trainings could be strengthened and uh, run on a larger scale. So policies and capacity building, I would say. It's very interesting that you mentioned the capacity building. I spoke to Sam Moore uh, also in one of our interviews, and he also specifically talked about capacity building. So I see a, a common thread there. And for our listeners, could you maybe share a bit about what, uh, what kind of items on these checklists uh, they, they could expect? Checklist is 
based on the text of uh, recommendation, but it makes it a little bit more actionable. So, for example, it says implement an open science policy, uh, make sure that uh, your institutional workflows and strategies are aligned, etc. So basically it cuts the text of recommendation a bit and uh, it removes some parts which uh, might not be targeting uh, universities but targeting governments, for example, or publishers. Um, and it's really like a checklist where they could put a check mark when it's done. But we haven't tested it yet. We'll, we'll have a meeting with... Uh, university administrators from Western Central African countries uh, later this month where we're going to test it and see. And uh, what uh, what are your hopes for the for this test? Like, uh, are you testing whether it's clear, whether people understand it, whether people would want to enact it? It's like a conversation starter to me because uh, it uh, outlines uh, areas of action that universities need to take. Uh, and it helps identify where universities are now, because perhaps they could already check some of the boxes um, and then also plan their further steps and uh, identify priorities. Uh, that's about policies, about research assessments, uh, capacity building. Um. And so do I understand correctly that the people you're testing this with or this checklist, it is for the willing uh, and how do you see this happening maybe with universities that say, ah, oh, we don't really care about this. We don't want to do this. Uh, do you feel like it also speaks to them or is it really more towards, uh, as, as they would often say in English, preaching to the choir and giving them the tools to do it? Well, I think it's also in a way bringing them willing because uh, UNESCO recommendation is a beautiful tool adopted by all the governments involved in, in uh, UNESCO and it's uh, an international uh, framework on open science and uh, there are also national pushes to implement those recommendations uh, so it creates a framework uh, it provides tools and if uh, there is a community in a country that could provide support to those who might not be willing to do this immediately or might be struggling how exactly to do that, that's great. But uh, of course, I understand that there might be some countries or areas where open science development yet and there is no community in them. But I guess starting small is always good. And uh, if we start with those who are interested and willing, perhaps that would create a desired effort. And then we, we didn't talk about... Uh, harder things to implement and these are national policies and I think if uh, universities introduce their institutional policies in a, an aligned way that creates uh, some pressure for the governments and also shows the need to the government that uh, national open science policies should be adopted and maybe then those national open science policies could provide a framework for unwilling institutions because then institutions would need to align with uh, with the national frameworks. Yeah, that's uh, that, that's interesting. And also what I have noticed personally is that uh, with the recommendation, it feels a bit like the tide is shifting. You're going to have parties who you know are a bit later, but... Uh, I agree that these implementations at institutional and the national level are going to be very interesting to follow. And the work you mentioned, uh, how, how would people be able to follow that? The Western Central African meeting um, 
is planned in collaboration with UNESCO, within Lipson's community, which is uh, a community of practice on open science uh, in Africa that includes research and education networks and librarians. And we'll, of course, make the checklist available uh, before the meeting and share it widely. And uh, we might also see how we promote it uh, with um, UNESCO support. Because uh, we came up with this idea of a checklist when uh, we had a webinar with uh, Open Access Publishing Association on uh, how publishers could open access publishers could implement uh, UNESCO recommendation on open science, and we thought that uh, if we want to talk about practical steps, then uh, why don't we try some practical tools? And uh, we are about to release that checklist as well for open access publishers. Uh, that seemed seemed like useful tool, and um, I hope it will also be useful for universities. But we'll see. In the UNESCO recommendation, they also outline that there can be specific reasons why access to knowledge can be restricted. They argue about national security, intellectual property rights, and a few others. And I wanted to ask you whether any of these, from your perspective, uh, are open to being overused and creating undesired boundaries on, uh, on knowledge, on openness. Thanks for that question. Very important one. Uh, I fully understand why open access can't be provided to the content which is private content or when we need to respect human subjects or under certain circumstances or when uh, there is a personal information in, in that content or when we talk about sacred and secret uh, indigenous knowledge or rare, threatened or endangered uh, species. But when we talk about intellectual property rights, uh, that's, that's a very large reason to close up the knowledge. And uh, of course, I'm not advocating for infringing intellectual property rights, but I'm pointing out that there should be really right balance between publishing and making things available, especially when we talk about publications, not data, because data is slightly different. Sir. And then uh, applying for patents. Uh, sometimes uh, there is a too strong push to protect and patent discoveries. Uh, and one example um, is the uh, government of uh, Zimbabwe that in May last year launched uh, an initiative that encourages state universities to deliver outstanding innovations and then they they were promised lucrative rewards from the government within their Education 5.0 initiative uh, and uh, in the end uh, Zimbabwe universities filed 140, uh, 140 patents and I think that's, that's a huge amount of patents and uh, I don't know whether all of them were as of high quality so I think conversations about respecting intellectual property rights and still going for as much openness as possible uh, are really useful now and would be helpful to university management and to knowledge transfer offices because I think they are a little bit at lost 
of course, in Europe, they have better guidance, but uh, in Africa, there is still this confusion. Yeah, I hear, I hear the, the point that you're making that these can be legitimate reasons and we need to need to be careful to balance those with uh, with legitimate interests. Uh, and there's also the risk of uh, illegitimate interests in that sense, uh, potentially. Yeah, and there is also cost-benefit analysis, uh, how much time and effort and money you would spend for patenting and uh, how much money you would be able to make out of that. And maybe it's really even economically more favorable to to go on an open route and uh, build on collaborations. Uh, if people were so rational, indeed, I really like also that you make this comparison uh, for with the legitimate, like the sacred knowledge, uh, versus indeed these uh, these more difficult areas where you know th that that can be open to abuse, like intellectual property. Also, being being conscious of our, our time together, I do want to be sure to, that, that our listeners get all the expertise from you uh, in, in that short time span. And I wanted to jump to, to the topic of uh, bibliodiversity in the recommendation. And uh, could you explain a bit to our listeners what this is, uh, why it is important, but also what your outlook uh, for that is? Well, I'm optimistic. Um... And um, in the recommendation, uh, it's under diversity and uh, inclusiveness uh, principle. Bibliodiversity is a term uh, that was widely used in Latin America. And then uh, there was a Jussier call in France, uh, which encouraged diversity of formats, means of publications, diversity of business models, with, of course, uh, an emphasis on uh, not-for-profit academic, uh, community-driven publishing models as a um, common good. Uh, UNESCO recommendation also encourages uh, multilingualism, and I think uh, that's, that's an important area because non-English language speaker, speaking researchers are really disadvantaged when they need to publish their research and when they are rewarded and promoted based on research published in uh, international journals, which are mostly in English language. So it would be great if uh, this Helsinki initiative on multilingualism in scholarly communication, when high-quality research is really valued regardless of the publishing language or publication channel. And we sort of see that picked up in uh, Paris Open Science uh, European Conference earlier this year and in the Paris School on Research Assessment. Uh, so that's that's one of the reasons I, I'm optimi optimistic about Europe. There are also very interesting developments in Latin America, how research in Spanish published in local journals could be promoted, uh, rewarded, uh, and uh, we're also trying to have conversations, South-South conversations between Africa and Latin America change in research assessment. So when you talk about bibliodiversity, multilingualism, it really focuses on uh, indeed meeting people where they're at. And uh, in a previous podcast, you also said that, uh, that this openness enables uh, a global conversation. How have you 
seen the discussions regarding the effects of the, the invasion of Ukraine on the research there, on how openness is perceived amongst your colleagues, and also vice versa with the um, excluding uh, researchers from Russia in the, out of the conversation more and more. Well, in, in Ukraine, um, I'm a part of uh, a working group that developed uh, a national action plan on open science. And we announced public consultation uh, right before the war started. And um, surprisingly, consultations went on and uh, we received uh, very useful feedback from researchers, uh, and uh, now this section plan is slightly revised. It's still on the governmental agenda, so open science is still a priority. And in Ukraine, it's also a part of open government movements. On the point of uh, excluding Russian researchers, uh, it's really appalling that uh, practice of Russian universities issued that ridiculous letter. And I was comparing that with, with a similar situation in Sudan, where we also work. And when uh, Sudan military coup happened, university rectors were brave enough to issue letter condemning the coup. And when, it, when I see uh, academics playing alone, uh, completely uh, false interpretation of uh, events. I, I, ca- I can't really consider them colleagues in, in, in a scientific sense because I, do, I don't see any critical reasoning. Uh, and uh, I guess it's all about sanctions and that's, that's the whole idea behind the sanction that if, if someone misbehaves and those people should understand that they misbehaved and the way to show them that they misbehaved is to introduce those sanctions. Of course, there are different nuances circumstances, but a reality is such that uh, I don't think there is a room for nuances in uh, cases like that. Uh, and then, of course, I think everyone is happy to, well, I don't know, hopefully happy to resume them uh, when this war is over, but until this war is gone, I, I, don't, I don't think we could be doing business as usual and saying that science is outside politics. Everything is political, really. Are there any final thoughts you want to leave our listeners with regarding the UNESCO recommendation on open science and anything else that we've discussed today? What I really like in uh, the UNESCO recommendation um, is inclusion of other types of knowledge and uh, non-traditional non-scientists and those who were traditionally marginalized from from scientific discussions and i think that's that's one of uh, especially to me that's that's one of current uh, challenges that i would like to address how citizens and community science could be really included uh, in uh, scientific practices, how non-scientists could be rewarded for contributing to scientific discoveries, because I think these boundaries between scientists and non-scientists with Zooniverse and other projects are really blurring, and um, we, we have to create a space where 
everyone is rewarded for a contribution she makes to scientific discoveries and everyone is really includes local communities uh, non-researchers researchers, researchers uh, and uh, all others supporting the research processes uh, and um, i think that's that's an interesting challenge uh, for the coming years uh. Irina, your perspectives uh, probably will have uh, resonated with listeners and I thank you very much for joining the Open Update and I look forward to following your work and the uh, topics we've discussed today but also other areas where you're active. So thank you again. Yeah, it, it, it was a great pleasure. Thanks a lot and uh, yeah, I hope we'll keep talking in, in wider circles. You just listened to another episode in the second season of The Open Update with an original interview with Irina Kuchma. We would love to hear from you because, you know, it's not just a podcast where you listen to us, but it's also a podcast where we try to listen to you. So leave us a voice message through the link in the show notes. You don't need to log in, create an account. Plus, you'll take part in our lottery for a small token of appreciation for listening, which we'll detail in episode four next week. But for now, have a good rest of your day. Take it easy. Next week, we'll be back with our interview with James Bridal, where we'll talk about how openness can create information overload and how to counteract it.